If you uh, didn't know, we're in a series all about our identity in Christ. And this is just, man, if there's like one of those teachings that I, I wish the church would get right, of course, the person of Christ and the gospel. And then I think second or third would be our identity, who we are because of who Jesus is. Because you, your life is going to be the overflow of your identity. And who you think you are is going to d- determine how you live. So if you have a wrong view of who you are, you're going to live wrong. If you have misconceptions about who you are in Christ and you have all these fundamental misunderstandings and it drives your life, you're going to live far beneath what God has called you to and what you're able to live. And so identity is huge. Knowing who you are, knowing why you are, knowing how you are. Because it's one thing to know, like, I know all the bullet points in the list. I grew up in church. I know all the things I am in Christ. But do you know how you're that? Do you know why you're that? Like the purpose behind that, you know? the mechanism by which all that is becomes possible because of the cross. And we talked about that the last two episodes where, you know, we looked at how Jesus is the only begotten son and how that really provides the the whole framework for who we are. Everything that he is, you know, as 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 the high priest, as the ultimate king, as the only begotten son and his heir heirship, it just that overflows into our identity. And so if you can know who you are and you see him clearer, you'll live different, man. Everyone wants to change their life, but you know what God does is he, he starts from change starts by changing you. When you come to him in faith and you put your faith in Jesus, he changes your nature, he changes your heart, he changes your essence and your desires and, and your ambitions and your character. He changes you. So you're a fundamentally new creation, resurrected from the dead spiritually, you're alive in Christ. Now you can get to work and live different. But you're gonna spend the rest of your life discovering and unearthing who you are. All that you already have, all that God already says you are, you just don't know it. You just don't know it. And I, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's frustrating. It's, for me, it's discouraging at times to see a lot of, I guess frustrating is a part of it. It's, it's sad, I guess, is the best way I can explain it. It's sad to see so many believers have all that they have in Christ and not even know it. Not even know who they are. Not even know what he's done. Not even know all that they have because of what he's done for them. And so today's episode three in this series, we're calling Children of God. Children of God. Because that's, that's who you are. Like at the bottom of all of it, at the core of who you are in Christ, you're a child of the living God. And so we unpack that. And today what we're going to look at is, I want to begin to unpack certain characteristics of our identity as children. And two of those attributes uh, are, you are sanctified, number one. And you are holy, number two. Now, before you tune out and go, I know this, I'm out of here. I don't think you do. Um, because I was studying this as someone who's been a Bible student for a while. I know I look 12, but I'm 30. So I've been studying the scriptures out for a while and walking with Jesus as someone who's been in the scriptures for a while. As I was preparing for this, I saw things that I frankly have never seen before. And it's not just like, oh, look, some cool gems in the scriptures. That's something that changes how you live. And so what God does is he, he gives you all this gold in the scripture for you to discover. And then it's like with each bit of truth you add to your life and you come to understand, it really does power you up to live different. God powers his people by the truth and he leads them by his spirit. And so if you can know the truth about who you are, it'll change the way you live. So today we're going to look at what it means that we're sanctified and what it means that we're holy. Let's get some interaction today. Let me know in the chat what you think it means that we are sanctified. Don't run to the Greek word. Don't cheat. Don't run to the Hebrew word. Just when you hear sanctified, just from your Christian understanding and what you know of church, 
What does it mean that those who believe in Jesus are sanctified? I want to hear your guys' thoughts. And then secondary, within that, what does it mean that we are holy? There is a difference. There's a difference, actually. Uh, Sanctifying becomes an action, an activity of God to do something. And then the, the sanctified object or thing or place or person is now sanctified which and you know qualifies it to now be holy. In other words, you're going to see that being holy is the result of being sanctified. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean. We're going to go into the Old Testament. I know this is going to... Uh, a lot of people aren't like Bible nerds, I guess, so this won't really excite you. But I'm telling you, the Old Testament paints a picture and, and lays the foundation for what it means to be sanctified. So when you when you piece it all together and you, you look at all these different aspects of being sanctified and holy in the Old Testament, and then you, you pivot and you look at who we are in Christ, all of that backstory really brings clarity to, to you now and what it means that you're sanctified and holy. Okay, so we got, um, let's read these comments. A process of being made holy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sanctified is redeemed as a part of it for sure. Being one with God forever, no matter what. You guys are thinking through this. I love it. Sanctified is set apart for a divine purpose. Yeah. So remember how I said you are who you are in Christ. You can know who you are and that doesn't mean you know why you are. So who I am in Jesus is actually with a purpose. God makes me something new and says I am now who I am for a purpose, right? Um, being cleansed. Yes, that's so important. The concept of, of, of uh, moral, ceremonial, spiritual cleansing. Yes, North Carolina, what's up? Good morning, Oklahoma City. Good to see you. Let's see the purification of our hearts. Mm. Mm-mm-mm. Cool. You guys are on the right track. Sanctified is set apart for a divine purpose and cleansed within and without. You guys are touching on all the different facets of sanctification and, and being holy. I love it. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to close the chat because y'all distract me in a good way. And I'm going to get to the scripture. So what I want to do is take you to Deuteronomy chapter 32. And what you're going to see in Deuteronomy chapter 32 uh, is, man, I'll, let me lay out the, you know, the journey for today. The journey starts today, okay? If you get it, you get it. We're going to look at how God is sanctified and God is holy primarily. So everything finds its origin in him. So you have to start with God. You're going to look at how certain locations and places are sanctified, how the nation of Israel is sanctified. The Israelite priests are sanctified within the sanctified nation. The Sabbath day is sanctified. The feast days are sanctified. The priestly vessels and the garments and the objects used and the instruments in the temple and worship and all of that, the altar, the you know, all of that is sanctified. Um, and ultimately, the result of all those different pictures is that God sanctifies um, as the origin of sanctification. He's the only one who has the authority to allow something to be sanctified and for, you know, priests to go and sanctify things under his authority and with his divine empowerment. So then you're going to see that believers are sanctified. Um, and then this leads us, okay, this trail leads us to you are now holy because you've been sanctified. 
So um, in the Hebrew, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse, 40, verse 51, um, this is what the Lord says in verse 50. Uh, bummer to Moses, unfortunately. Uh, Moses is going to die. He's not going to see the promised land or at least go in. Okay, so this is what the Lord says. The very day the Lord spoke to Moses, go up to this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho. You're getting a very clear geographical picture of where they're at. View the land of Canaan. So he gets to see it. He doesn't get to experience it, which I'm giving to the people of Israel for a possession. Now watch. And die. <laughs> Just bummer. And die on the mountain which you go up. And I want you to be gathered to your people. As Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. So there's a similar, there's a comparison going on. As Aaron died in that fashion on that mountain for also sin, Moses, unfortunately, you're going to go through the same. Um, and look at why. It's because you broke faith with me. This is where we get to the sanctified aspect. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy. Treating as holy here, I'm going to highlight it for you. It, the Hebrew word there is sanctified. Um, it means, well, actually, in Hebrew, silver is not here to correct me so I can get away with this. In Hebrew, it's kadash. In, weirdly enough, in Hebrew, the word holy uh, is pronounced Kadosh. And so we have Kadosh in Hebrew to sanctify. Um, and then in to be holy uh, is Kadosh. And I'm going to show you what this means, okay? Because what God is saying is, yeah, you're going to die on the mountain. Moses, bummer, my guy, because you didn't treat me as holy. You didn't sanctify me in the midst of the people, in front of them. You didn't sanctify me. What's he referring to? Well, when Moses was told, uh, I want you to speak to the rock. He ended up striking the rock. Um, so he did that the first time. And then God allows water to come out the, of the rock, you know. And then there's a second opportunity where Moses is fed up with the nation. And God goes, hey, they want water? Let's get water. Go and stand by the rock. I'll stand with you. Speak to the rock. Water will come out. Instead, he strikes it. Um, that's not what the Lord said. And you can even pull up. Pull up this verse right here. Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock. It's back in Numbers chapter 20. So God, in hindsight, looking back at that, recalling that, is saying, you chose not to sanctify me in the midst of the people, in front of the people of Israel. Um, so God is to be sanctified. The word sanctify, again, in the Hebrew, I didn't say the actual like possibilities for the word, depending on the context, um, but it can mean to consecrate. Uh, to set apart, and at the core, every time the word sanctify is used, it is to separate or distinguish. Um, we serve a God of separation. In the very beginning of Genesis, we see God separating, distinguishing, making these boundaries, categorizing, right? Um, structuring the world, separating the darkness from the light, separating the waters above from the waters below, separating the dry land from the waters, um, separating, you know, the sea creatures from the sky creatures, from the land creatures. There's all this separation, separating, you know, uh, the sun from the moon. So God, God is a God of order and separation, distinguishment. And here, God was not sep set apart by Moses in front of the nation. Um, Exodus 36, 23 
if this is not the right passage, I'm going to be sad. Um, is this not it? Ah, I might have mistyped. Hold on. thought it was Exodus 36. I'm off to a great start. Hold on, let me do my handy dandy. Pretend research. Okay, with the waters, you did not sanctify me. That's the word there. Treat it as holy. Uh, same word is used in... If it's not Exodus 36, then way is it? It's all over Exodus, by the way. Um, where is it? God being treated as holy. Places, temple of God. Can't find it. I think we can all agree that God is set apart and distinct from creation. But, you know, for God to be sanctified by someone isn't to make God something he's, he's not already, but it's to treat God as he is distinct from creation, separate, uh, distinguished. So, um, in other words, God calls Israel to, to sanctify, really, uh, or to treat him as sanctified, set, you know, as set apart, as distinct, as they're called to be distinct, as the nation of Israel is called to be different. Um, so what I wanted to show you in Exodus 36, which I guess that's not the chapter, um, was that any uh, setting apart, any distinguishing that is right originates in God because he himself is distinguished from everything in existence, from everything in existence. Um, and so... Um, you're going to see that God's glory is going to sanctify the altar, the tabernacle. And let's just go there, actually. But firstly, when it comes to our identity, I've said this over and over, to, to, to see yourself clearest, you need to see God clearer. Um, you'll see yourself more accurately in light of your Father, in light of the Son who was sent to be the perfect human we all failed to be. Um, and so I also want to show you not only is God, you know, himself already set apart, he's already holy. We see this in Isaiah, we see this in Revelation, the angels cry out, holy, 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 thrice holy, um, double thrice, Isaiah and Revelation. And that's making a statement about God being fundamentally, categorically different than anything in existence, in character, in nature, in power, in essence, uh, in, in, in worth, in all of that, in, in deserving worship, he's not He's not in the category of creation. He's different. But for us to sanctify, or for the nation of Israel, or for Moses to sanctify God, is to treat him as he is. God is holy, but people can choose to not treat him as holy. They can treat him as common, as just another part of creation, when in fact he's not. So Moses, you know, and I forget where in Exodus 36 I was, I was going to bring this Bring this home with maybe it was Deuteronomy. Hold on. Possibly. There's no Deuteronomy 36. All right, it's a fail on my part. What's cool is not only is God, you know, set apart as holy, and not only can he be um, distinguished from everything else and treated or sanctified because he already is holy, but so can locations. There are places in the biblical text, locations, uh, areas that are sanctified. And this is very important, okay? This is what really rocked me. 
every time, whether it's Bethel, whether it's Mount Sinai, whether it's the altar, the tent of meeting, uh, the ground Moses or Joshua standing on, the temple of Solomon, all these different places, the reason that they're sanctified, I want you to catch this because this is, I want you to already be thinking about our identity in Christ. The reason these places are set apart and treated as holy and not common is because the presence of God, the holy presence of God marks that place as uniquely different from other spaces. Uh, These become divine spaces where heaven and earth meet, you might say, and God you know, um, stamps that place as uniquely different by his presence. Think about how we now have the presence of God and we're called the temple. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 28, 16 through 19, I don't have to go like this deep, but I want to show you, okay? Exodus 28, uh, Jacob is here. You're not going to see the the word sanctified exactly, okay? But the concept, at least here in, in, in Jacob's story, being at Bethel is is at play. The concept of sanctifying, setting apart. Uh, Jacob wakes up from his sleep after a crazy dream, and this is what he says: "Surely the Lord is in this place." Number one, God is in this place. He's he's now realized it. Jacob was not aware of that prior to the dream. God interacts with Jacob in this dream, and makes it very clear: this place is very different. Um, and he says, I, "I didn't know it. I didn't know it." Uh, which might even indicate the fact that he didn't treat it as holy, and now he's going to, okay? He was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. Interesting. That's the conclusion he comes to. In other words, for him, this becomes, a, I don't know, a sort of door into the the, uh, the abiding place of God. God in, you know, interacts with the material world here. God actually seems to invade our material world at this location, um, and this is the gate of heaven. Jesus will reference this in John's gospel. So early, early in the morning, Jacob took the stone he put under his head, um, and he set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil. This is important. He poured oil on his pillow. First of all, why are you sleeping on a rock? But secondly, why are you pouring oil on your pillow, buddy? Something's going on here. He's realized how awesome this place is because God is here. It's the gate of heaven. I don't want to spend too much time here. He pours oil on the top of it. He calls the name of that place Bethel. Um, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow. In other words, the, this dream, this location, this space causes Jacob to respond by making a vow to the Lord here. Something's going on. Something uh, beyond just the material world. Okay, And he marks it by pouring oil on the top of the pillar he's setting up. Um, so sometimes in scripture, when, when pillars are set up, it's to memorialize something. It's to mark that place or that, that point in, 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 in history or that season in a nation's history or that place where God did something. These, these markers, uh, often pillars and rocks will symbolize that place as, as uniquely different or that season as uniquely different. And here Jacob's doing that. You know, you might say that Jacob is sanctifying the place because treating it as holy, because God is there, because God is there and he himself is holy and the presence of God, where he goes, it becomes holy. Um, Think about Mount Sinai. Let me take it to Exodus chapter 19. This is where you'll see the actual word in Hebrew for sanctify used, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So the Lord descends on Mount Sinai, remember? And then uh, Moses says to the Lord, hey, the people can't come up to Mount Sinai. 
You told us, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down, come up, bring Aaron with you. Uh, but don't let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So God has descended on Mount Sinai in fire and, you know, pillar of, of, of smoke and, and darkness and lightning and thunder. It's terrifying. Um, you and I probably are looking at back going, I'd love to see that. No, you wouldn't. You'd grab your pants. So he says, God told Moses to consecrate the mountain, which is to set limits around it and to not let any animal, any person touch the mountain. Do you know why? Because God had descended on the mountain. It was now holy. It was set apart from other mountains, other locations. And uh, the, the concept of a mountain and ascending to meet with God, that becomes a huge theme. But it's consecrated. That's the point. It's set apart. It's sanctified. That's another word for sanctify, is to consecrate something. I think you're starting to build a picture in your head. Um, and what's also interesting is when something is sanctified and set apart, um, there's, there's something involved that, that plays a purifying role. Whether it's, uh, I think here in Mount Sinai, what we see is the, the, the holy fire of God somewhat purifying the mountain itself to become holy because God is there, he's descended, he's meeting Moses, and the nation of Israel, have, they've consecrated, treated that mountain as holy because God's purifying fire, he's a consuming fire, has descended upon it. In fact, it, at the same mountain, uh, you know, before Moses is ever called to go and rescue the people of Israel, he sees a flaming bush, right? And the whole presence of Yahweh, the visible presence, the invisible presence, and um, Moses approaches, and God calls out to Moses. And Moses goes, hey, here I am. Watch yourself. He said, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy. Then Moses realizes there's a divine, spiritual something going on here. Um, so the, the place where Moses is standing um, when he's shepherding Jethro's flock and he sees this bush, it's called holy ground. It is set apart ground. In other words, it has been sanctified by the one who has invaded that space being God. Um, so God has declared it to be holy ground, just like Mount Sinai, just like what Jacob seems to be doing at Bethel. Um, I don't have to show you this because we, I think we can all agree. I'll just give you the text. Exodus 29, 36-37, uh, Leviticus 8, 15, and Leviticus 21, 8. Those are all Bible verses that will show you how the sacrificial altar of the tabernacle was sanctified, okay? But in order for it to be set apart and sanctified for animal sacrifice unto the God of Israel, first, it had to be purified. In other words, there, there becomes this progression when it comes to something being made holy. And, and this is where you're going to see yourself begin to fit into this whole picture, where God purifies or he decides, I want to sanctify that. And there's some kind of purification element involved that, that you know, sanctifies that thing to be set apart, and now it's holy. Not just because God, because God has deemed it holy, but because God has effectively made it holy. And so when it comes to the altar and the tabernacle, 
um, it's not going to be the fire of God necessarily, but God's going to call Moses to sprinkle sacrificial animal blood to purify or to the, the language used is to make atonement for the altar um, where the sacrifices will be made. Same with the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting where God would meet Moses, and it seems like Joshua would be there sometimes, is Exodus 29, 44. He says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. This is God speaking. Um, and watch this. And you know, let's back up a verse. He goes, um, he's talking about the regular burnt offering throughout their generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay? So the tent of meeting is about to be referenced again. Before it becomes the temple, um, before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Sorry, I mixed up the tabernacle and the tent of meeting. So this is where God meets Moses. This place of meeting, which you're going to see meeting places because God is there, becomes sanctified. God sanctifies it by his what? Well, by his glory. And then he says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting. Okay. Highlight this. And the altar. Aaron and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. So now Aaron and the priesthood, they're going to be consecrated as well. You have a lot of God making holy, declaring something different and distinct from the rest. In other words, the nation of Israel, there, there becomes like um, subcategories of sanctification. The nation of Israel has been distinguished, set apart from the surrounding nations, right? God has sanctified them. Um, you might say part of that sanctification process symbolically was going through the Red Sea, a kind of washing into coming into newness of life and into a new reality where the God of Israel reigns and we're not in slavery, right? But then Aaron, uh, Moses is going to sprinkle blood on the people uh, to speak to the cleansing, the sanctifying that's taking place. But even within the nation, you have a sanctified, uh, you know, priesthood, the tribe of Levi. Okay, the tribe of Levi, uh, if you wanted to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. Not all Levites were priests, but all priests had to be Levites. And even within that, you have the high priest, and he's sanctified. He's set apart from even the rest of the typical priesthood. He goes in on the holy of Hol into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement once a year to make atonement for the nation and to represent them. So God making or sanctifying, rather, okay? And then we'll get into the Greek word as well. You're going to see the Greek word really, I think, adds another element to it. Um, not that the Hebrew is lacking, but at least in our English language, we, we miss this element. The tent of meeting is sanctified or purified by, by animal, sacrificial animal blood. And you're going, I don't see that. Hebrews 9.21 gives some helpful commentary on what's happening in the Old Covenant. Uh, he's speaking about, in the same way he, um, being Moses, he sprinkled with the blood... Uh, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Hold on. My app just quit. Come back, app. Oh, there you are. There you are, buddy. There you go. Okay, Hebrews 9.21. So now you should be... Okay, perfect. Whew. I thought I'd have to quit. That'd be a bummer. 
So Moses sprinkles with blood the tent, number one, and the vessels, number two, specifically used in what though? Worship. In other words, places, things, people that are sanctified. Specifically when God is involved in setting it apart and, you know, playing, allowing, you know, purifying it, whether by sacrificial animal blood or by his presence or by oil. Worship is most often um, the purpose behind those things. So when it comes to the tent of meeting, you know, or the vessels, they play a role in what is referred to, not in our modern Western idea of worship, because we just think worship is only singing, but in the biblical concept of worship, you have those two things involved, and they're purified by what? By the blood of the covenant, the old covenant, which was sprinkled, um, which not only you know had to do with the covenant, but had to do with purifying. So we have Bethel, is a place that's sanctified. The sacrificial altar, uh, the tent of meeting, Mount Sinai, twice actually. And then, I'll, let me show you Joshua. In Joshua 5, it's probably the last, second to last place I'll show you. But it's cool when you start to really see this. Joshua 5, uh, he meets the commander of the Lord's army. And the commander looks at him and goes, boy, take off your sandals. Mm. Where did we hear that before? Moses. Take off your sandals from your feet. Why? That's kind of weird. Well, the place where you're standing is holy. Whoa. So we saw that with Moses. Same idea. This place is sanctified by the presence of, and I've gone through this with the Divine Son series, how I believe who's actually here is um, the visible presence of the Lord being Jesus called the commander of the Lord's army. Not Michael, um, but some people want to make it Michael. And it's holy because the presence of the Lord has sanctified that ground or that place. First uh, Kings 9.3, we see the temple. This is the last place. Um, the Lord says, because Solomon is going, you know, he builds the house, he dedicates it to God, he makes this grand prayer. Essentially, God, please treat this temple differently than any other place, not just in the world, but in Israel. Like if we get exiled and we look back at this temple, or if our enemies are coming for us and we look at this temple, would you honor that and sanctify this place? And the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you've made before me. I have consecrated this house. I've consecrated this house that you've built by putting my name, his reputation, his character, the, full, the fullness of who God is, um, his presence. He puts his name there, which consecrates it. And so what you'll see with each of these um, places is that there's some element of uh, purification involved, whether it's the actual presence of God or, you know, um, ritual sacrificial blood from animals that's doing the kind of purifying or making atonement. Um, and it's always for a purpose. Usually, usually uh, it involves an element of worship. So far, this is sanctified in places. Um, 
If you didn't already know, and I'm not going to pull up the text because I'm just going to go through this now. We, we got places to be. We're 35 minutes in. The nation of Israel is actually sanctified. And I, I said this before, but back to the locations. In many cases, before God sanctifies or sets a place apart, there's some kind of cleansing, purification required in order for that to be deemed sanctified. And then consequently, now that it's sanctified, it can function according to the sanctified purpose God assigns it. In other words, for something to be sanctified, it's always for a purpose, and most often, from what I've gathered, it's for the purpose of worship. It's for the purpose of worship, okay? So, I mean, you can start to see how this connects to us being sanctified, set apart for worship, purified, cleansed, the presence of God inhabiting us as the temple, you start to see it, huh? Uh, the nation of Israel is sanctified. They're pulled away and separated from the other surrounding nations. They're pulled out of Egypt. That's part of the sanctifying process is they're pulled away and brought into a new mode of existence, which is outside of slavery and in freedom, following the Lord, um, going to the promised land. So you can read about uh, you know, the Red Sea and how that, that looks like a kind of them being sanctified through, you know, what the Egyptian army couldn't survive. Um, Exodus 24, 8 literally speaks of them being sanctified. Moses takes the blood um, and he actually sprinkles it on them to symbolically and actually um, show what's happening, how God is treating them now. But I will say this, okay? The letter to the Hebrews makes a makes a, a big case for the fact that the kind of sanctifying and setting apart happening in the Old Covenant, because it's with animal blood, it's nowhere near... In other words, I'll say it like this. We have a better kind of sanctification now. Uh, the, the level to which we're sanctified and the kind of sanctifying God brings us through is better than what you see happening in the Old Testament because it's all with physical, material, temporary, limited elements that God works with for sure and he honors and he deems you know something that will, will do something. But with Jesus, I mean, Hebrews will say it's the eternal blood of the covenant. He's infinitely valuable. He's God in the flesh. His, you know, he's, um, his blood is eternal. He's not just some animal whose blood's being spilled. So what's going to be sanctified as a product of Jesus's blood in the new covenant is going to be at like a level two sanctification compared to the level one sanctification we see in the Old Testament. Not to belittle what's happening here, but it, it is not as good as what Jesus does. So you do see pictures of, your, of, of yourself in this, right? But Jesus, you know, ups the level a little bit. A lot, actually. Um, also, I already showed you the Israelite priests are, are sanctified. Exodus 28, 3 and, and verse 41. The priests are actually sanctified. They're distinguished from the common people of Israel. And again, for sacred responsibilities. So they're separated by God from the rest of Israel for a unique purpose, which is worship. They do the priestly service on behalf of the nation. Um, the Sabbath day, let me take you to Genesis 2-3. Um, it's sanctified. In other words, 
the Sabbath day, Saturday, is going to be set apart from the rest of the days of the week. There's no way to get around this. So God blesses the seventh day and made it holy. So, in other words, making something holy is what it means to sanctify something. Something that is holy has been sanctified. It's gone through the process. Whether that's the setting apart, the deeming distinguished, uh, God honoring that is different from the rest, or purifying. Right? So God makes the seventh day holy because on it God rested from all his work he did in creation. Exodus 20 verse 11 will also speak to the fact that the Sabbath day is set apart. In other words, you were to see that day as different and therefore you would function differently than the rest of the other days of the week. Um, Certain calendar days, when it comes to the feasts of Israel, those were sacred times for the people of Israel uh, to regard those days as uniquely different. Uniquely different. There were were prescribed, you know, religious service that would take place there were certain things and that you'd have to do and and certain conditions you would meet of course it was as a an act of gratitude and worship to the god of israel you can see that in exodus 20 verse 8 where it talks about uh the the feast days uh being sanctified by god and i showed you this in hebrews 9 21 the priestly vessels and the tabernacle uh they're sanctified Everything that the priest would engage with and use as involving, you know, or that was unto God for worship, whether it's to deal with the sacrifices or to put the blood on the altar or to bring it on the Day of Atonement or to all the different instruments in the actual, um, you know, temple, tabernacle at the time. Um, Not the most holy place, but the holy place where the typical priest could go in. All those different instruments and stuff were purified and washed in blood, Hebrews 9.21. And read Leviticus. They're all pu- they're set apart. That's what I want you to see. What God uses and what God receives, or I guess what God authorizes for worship, is always going to be purified and set apart for the function of worship. Um, this is why Jesus will answer the woman at the well and go, look, it won't be at this place or this mountain or that mountain where you worship God because God is looking for those who worship him in spirit and truth. And that's where the whole temple language comes in, that we're now the temple filled with the spirit. Anyone can be that through faith in Jesus. That way, anywhere they go, it becomes what? Holy ground because God is there. Um, it's, it's, this, this will give you a different framework for how to see God in your life and who he's made you to be. I promise. So so many believe, and I'm not trying to inflate your ego by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not trying to give you a, a, a big old head so you fall over. Um, I'm trying to give you a very clear picture of who God has made you to be so you can function appropriately. Believers have such a, just the typical believer, they have, they have such a, a low level of respect i guess for who god has made them to be um and it's a bummer because they just don't see it so i'm trying to help you see it um and ultimately when we trace this all back to the origin of this exodus 31 verse 13 this is the key when it comes to something being sanctified when it comes to something being 
made holy or set apart and consecrated. Exodus 31, 13. The Lord says to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, keep my Sabbaths. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know I, the Lord, sanctify you. Who is the source of of sanctification and purification and, and holiness? It's God. Now, this is true sanctification. Uh, the actual word to be set apart, Israel will, in some sense, sanctify themselves to, to idols. They'll set themselves apart to go and worship idols. Instead of setting themselves apart unto God from the rest of the nations, right? They'll actually set themselves apart from God to go and worship idols. So the same idea can carry over into a negative sense. Something can be set apart unto something destructive and, and, and evil, but God sanctifies us to something pure and good and um, perfect. Leviticus 21 verse 8, um, it says, You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you. Um, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And in context, I don't know necessarily, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, uh, he shall not make himself unclean. So the priests have, you know, uh, requirements as well. They have standards. And he's holy because the Lord sanctifies. Now watch. Both times, or at least in this context, right here, part of God's sanctifying is built on this. He's holy. Nothing, I'll say it like this, something that is not holy and pure and righteous and, and, and pure light, something that is not holy cannot make something else holy. Something that is not perfect cannot make something else perfect. In other words, something to be sanctified properly, made holy, made you know acceptable to, be, to, to worship God, whatever it is, God has to be the originator of that. It's all based on him. He's the origin of it. And so now we get to all these different texts that talk about how, well, believers are sanctified. And the Greek word for sanctify, hagiadzo. That's, I looked it up. That's how it's said, hagiadzo. So back off, you Greek scholars. Make fun of me later. It means to make holy to consecrate or to set apart as hallowed or sacred, okay? To purify or to make holy, and it involves separation from the profane, from the corrupted, from unclean, from the common, to be dedicated unto God. In other words, in the Greek, there's this at least clearer for us in our English, this clearer dimension of... um, Something purified to be sacred. The word sacred, for me at least, just carries a different picture in my head. So let me take you to 1 Corinthians 1, 2, so I can begin to show you what this means. Okay, now remember, this is all about identity. Okay. But if I tell you you're sanctified and you go, sweet, I'm sanctified, it doesn't really pack a punch. You need to explain what sanctifying means, who, who it's originates in 
what it's doing, what sanctifying looks like. Um, and so 1 Corinthians 1, 2. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. It says, to the church of God that's in Corinth. Now look at how Paul describes those who are the church of God. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. So Paul makes it very clear that if you're a saint, if you're a part of the church, if you have faith in Messiah, you are sanctified because he sanctifies you, okay? And guess what? It, it involves sanctifying right here in the same verse is related to calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus. Now you can say that has to do with believing and coming into faith. Initially, I have nothing wrong with that. But I believe the calling upon the name of God is a continual thing believers do. You don't believe in, in you know in the Messiah and, and call upon the name of Jesus for salvation and then never call upon him again for like peace and help and intervention and clarity. And you call on this is what it looks like in the Old Testament for the patriarchs to worship the God of Israel. It's referred to as calling upon the name of, of God, calling upon the name of the Lord. So this, I believe, actually refers to everyone in the known world at that time who's in Christ and worships him. So what Paul does, which I think we already saw in the Old Testament, there's reason to think this, is he connects the concept of being sanctified to worshiping God. We live... I want to be careful how I say this, okay? I'm not at all trying to bash anyone, but we've come to a place in the American church where we've so watered down the holiness and the, the majesty and the just the overall supremacy and glory of God, where it's like, you know, he'll take any kind of worship. If you do whatever you want and just call it worship, he'll take it. It's like, actually, no, like, God has prescribed to us what worship is. God has clearly laid out, this is what worship looks like. And so if it doesn't fit into the, fit in that framework, it's not worship. So if God says, I define worship like this, and you're going, but I'm going to go do this and do nothing like what you told me to. I'm going to go and do this and call it worship. God would say, it's not worship. But also, here's the thing. There's not just a way to worship. Something has to be fit for worship. Do you understand? It's not just like anyone, anywhere, anywhere around the world right now can just start worshiping God and he'll accept it. Something has to be declared capable and fitted for worship. It has to be like, um, I'll say it like this, um, made <laughs> worthy of even worshiping the king. There are certain instruments in the temple and the tabernacle that are set apart from the common and they're fit to be involved in worship. So when we're sanctified, it involves this God is making you um, fit for worship. Now you are, are in a place where you can offer the spiritual worship he receives as honorable. The typical unbeliever outside of Christ, dead in sin, can't do that. They can pray to some generic God they've made up. 
They can sing the same songs in church we do, right? But the whatever is going on with them <laughs> that they think is worship, if they're outside of Christ, it's not real worship. And I know that like frustrates people, but biblically, something has to be made fit, consecrated, and sanctified for worship. And worship is not just singing. So that's why I'm like, we don't understand who we are. We really don't. Because if we did, we'd worship with a little more passion. And not just singing, living. Living different. Because you'd realize he has made you fit for offering. Now you can actually offer acceptable worship, spiritual worship he receives as glorifying. Whereas prior to that, without Jesus, you could sing all the songs. You can even read the scriptures. You could even do morally good things. And God wouldn't receive that as worship. Because the object, the person outside of Christ, dead in sin, in darkness, as an enemy of God, can't offer that. They can't produce something that honors him and glorifies him. They have to be fit for that. 1 Corinthians 6.11, it says, uh, he goes on this list of just talking about what they used to be and how those people won't inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes, such were some of you. But you were washed. Remember how I said sanctifying Setting apart involves a purifying washing too. It's not just like God goes, hey, a random instrument I found on the ground that used to pick up horse turds. Now I'm going to use it for the priest to do something with that honors me. There's a washing first in order for it to be sanctified and holy, fit for use, fit for worship. So he goes, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And I wonder, I am convinced all these three ideas go together. You can't have, like really, when, as believers, you can't have one without the other. One will effectively produce the other. To be washed is to be sanctified, you're justified. All these three ideas go together. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. So, who becomes the effective means of sanctifying and washing and justifying? Well, ultimately, God. But the one actually applying that to the human soul here, or the one who is, I'll say this, the reason now that you're sanctified and washed and justified, you might say, well, the death, resurrection of Jesus, the blood of the Messiah, absolutely, absolutely. But as a result of that, he says, now I'll send my spirit. So actually, it's the presence of the spirit because of the atonement. It's the presence of the spirit that allows us to be what? Sanctified and washed. Remember how I said in the Old Testament, when something is sanctified or consecrated or set apart, it usually involves the presence of God when it's a location. Bethel, Mount Sinai, the temple, the tabernacle, tent of meeting, the altars, Joshua, wherever God meets Jacob, it's sanctified by his presence. So if God's going to sanctify a people, if God's going to wash people, something 
There has to be an element of God's presence is involved. That's all I'm going to say for now. Okay? There has to be. Ephesians 5.26. This talks about husbands love your wives. Husbands are like, I'm trying. As Christ loved the church, especially after Mother's Day. Come on, boys. And he gave himself up for her. Why? Jesus loves, so he loves enough to give himself up. This is him yielding up his own life and saying, no one's taking this, I'm giving it up on my own. Why does he do that? Well, it says to sanctify her. Her is the church. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So guess what we have again? We have washing, cleansing, resulting in sanctifying. But look at the tool by which Jesus washes and cleanses his people. It's the word. He's not using uh, a power washer. He's not using a sponge. He's not using bleach. The, the, what's effectively washing and sanctifying and cleansing the human soul involving the Spirit of God is the Word, the truth of His Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's interesting. I'll, I won't go down that train of thought yet. I haven't fully explored that. So I'm going to hold on to it. But I want you to see this. Um, some would read this and go, this is talking about a future reality. When you'll be made holy and without blemish. Here's what I'll say. I think this is talking about what will ultimately happen in the future when it comes to the presenting. When Jesus presents or the father presents or they're both presenting what is called here the church the collection of believers across time and space that believe in the messiah this church she has been washed sanctified purified and in the future in the new creation she'll be set forth distinguished from the rest of the world the separation from the goats and the sheep right the judgment the world doesn't know us as we are, but they will. This is the presenting of the church. That's a future thing. But I don't believe being made holy and without blemish happens later. That happens now, right this second. When you believe in the Messiah, you are sanctified and holy and without blemish. Sin, past, present, future, covered, dealt with, taken away, never to be held against you again. There's no condemnation in Christ. You're completely purified. You're made holy. And we're going to see this. That's not a future thing I'm hoping will happen. It's like right now, you're holy and without blame. No one can bring an accusation against you as if to condemn you in the sight of God and separate you now into eternal death. That's not a thing. But, but I don't always live like that, number one. And number two, the world doesn't see me as that, doesn't see us as that. Eventually, though, there will be this magnificent presentation. Um, 
I don't want to liken it to a kind of negative picture, but you know, uh, who is it? It's Artaxerxes, I believe, who presents his wife, uh, Queen Vashti, uh, before Esther steps in and takes her place. You got Queen Vashti, and he's having a huge old banquet. By the way, the thing lasts like weeks. Um, and he's so drunk out of his mind, sitting there with all the most powerful rulers in his kingdom, and he's going, where's my wife? I'm about to show her off. Where are you, Vashti? Come here. Let me show everyone here how beautiful you are. That, that's the picture. That's the picture. But instead of it being some like drunken, like not so good kind of thing, this is Jesus going, look at my people. Look at my people. They're holy and without blame. And ever since they trusted in me, they've been that. But their bodies didn't match that inward reality. Their life didn't perfectly conform to that. The world didn't see them as that. Now, it's very clear. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 It says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now, this is where it gets interesting. I'm actually going to hold on this. I put these out of order. Okay. I'm going to pull that verse down where it's supposed to go in my list. Um, Perfect. Okay. I know you have questions for that because you're going to, you just said we're sanctified. How is it that we're not been sanctified completely? Hebrews 3.12. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Oof. Leading you to fall away. Um, that's not the verse. That's why I was like, what? It's not at all what I planned. This, right here. Jesus also suffered. Whew, outside the gate. In order to sanctify the people. Now, how does sanctification happen? By his blood. By his blood. There's three things we've seen involved in us being sanctified by God. The blood of Jesus, the presence of the Spirit who applies the work of Jesus, um, and the, the Word. The Word by which we receive inward cleansing by the Spirit, effectively accomplished by the blood of Jesus. Those three elements. The blood, the Word, um, and the Spirit. I'm just thinking in 1 John, there's an interesting passage that says three. There's three that testify. Does it say the blood, the word, the spirit, okay? The blood and the water. I wonder if that's the word. Okay, sorry, just side, side note. Some things click for me when I'm reading with you guys. Like I legit ask God, Teach me, please. Like, while I'm teaching them, teach me things I haven't even seen. And he did that just now. Wow. This is crazy, bro. Okay, so what, what I want you to see here is sanctification, setting apart for use, holy use, and worship requires the blood of Jesus. Okay? In John 17, Jesus says this, and you might say, well, this is just about the, tw the 11 apostles, 
12 if you count Matthias, but who, who remembers his name, you know? But I would argue, mm, I don't think this is just true of the apostles. Because he's going to add all those who also will believe in your name through them, through their testimony. So Jesus, as the high priest, you think about what he's about to do. He's about to give up his life, be nailed to a cross, undergo tremendously gruesome suffering and torture, pay the debt of human evil. In his flesh, evil will be condemned, die our death, go up, shoot up from the grave three days later, show up to the apostles, work with those knuckleheads for 40 days, shoot up to heaven, be our high priest and our mediator. But before he does that, he prays this, sanctify them, Father, in the truth. Your word is truth. We've already seen that the word of God, the truth of God, which ultimately Jesus is the embodiment of it, but the word of God is what sanctifies, purifies. You might say it like this. When I'm thinking of the Levitical temple system and the sacrifices and the priesthood and the temple, you might say, well, the blood effectively cleansed and washed and sanctified the, the tent and, and the, the altar and the vessels, I would say the blood, the animal sacrificial blood, yes, points to Jesus who ultimately and perfectly consecrates us, but the animal blood does nothing unless God declares that it will. So it's as if the word that comes from God allows for the animal blood to bring any kind of purification or sanctification. It's the fact that God authorized it by his word. He said, this is what will happen. And now the blood of an, a typical animal, a goat, a bull, you know, being sprinkled on the book and being sprinkled on the people and being, you get blood and you get blood and you get blood. And the people of Israel are like, this is really weird. There's a purification ceremony happening. The covenant's being established, but that blood does nothing unless God first declares that it does. And this is where I think the blood, the word, um, and the spirit come into play. Which is because you're going, how does the word, well, you believe the Father's testimony of the Son or what the Son has done for us, His perfect life, His death, His resurrection. You trust in that. You believe the Word of God. Jesus is the Word. So you're not just believing the Father's, you know, statement about the Son and testimony of the Son. You're believing in the Son as the Word Himself and what He's done for you. And that brings a kind of washing. And Jesus says, sanctify them in that truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself. So what does Jesus do? He sets himself apart from what? From the rest of humanity. As the perfect human being we all failed to be. But the consecration is not just to distinguish from the rest of humanity. It's that he has set himself apart to do the will of the Father, which is to die for human evil. It's a consecration towards an end goal and with a purpose. That they can be sanctified in the truth. This is where the blood comes in. No blood being shed for human evil. No word sanctifying the human soul. No sanctifying, no setting apart, no being made holy without the blood of Jesus first bringing the cleansing 
and washing so that through that sanctifying process you can be made holy. Um, mm, I don't think I have to prove to you much more that we're sanctified except go to Acts 20.32 on your own. Acts 20 verse 32 and then Acts 26.18. Those two verses very clearly refer to the saints as sanctified, like presently, now. In fact, Hebrews 10.10 kind of seals the deal for those that are like, well, we're not fully sanctified, brother. Read Hebrews 10.14 and 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and this is how people talk when they disagree with me. At least that's how I imagine it. Hebrews 10.10, it says, By that will, the true will of the Father, which was never just to stop at the Old Covenant, just to be clear, because he talks about how the Old is past, uh, and then the second has taken the place or built on the first. By that will, we have been sanctified. Did you catch that? We have been. It's done. It's past tense. It's finished. It's accomplished. We're sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. And you go, well, that doesn't mean we're totally sanctified. We're still being sanctified. Just to be clear, he's taken away all sins. That's what it will go on to say. He's been perfected for all time. He's perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. So we are perfected. We're fit for holy use now. We're fit for worship that the Father will accept because our sins have been dealt with. So notice all the, sometimes it's, it's easy to lose the ideas as we progress through this. So I want to bring it back. Remember how I said in sanctifying, something being set apart, there's an element of cleansing, washing. Well, here the sin is what we need to be cleansed of. Jesus took that away. So now we're sanctified. Now you get verses like this where it's like, meh, what do we do with this? What do we do, Lord? Hebrews 10, 14. It says, By a single offering, he's perfected those who are being. You see it? Being sanctified. So are we sanctified now, fully, perfectly, eternally, or are we being sanctified not to yet attain perfection? Both. Both. Not that we haven't attained perfection. We have not yet attained a perfect body, glorified, resurrected, that matches our inward identity and, and nature of being sanctified and washed and purified and perfect and holy and blameless. Inwardly, that's who we are. But our bodies and our lives don't match that. So you have the already... Right? I am perfect in Christ. I am set apart. I am sanctified. I am holy and blameless. But I don't live like it, and I don't have a body that matches that. Here we have the clear distinction between what God is doing real time in your life, conforming you to more like into the image of Jesus, while at the same time, you are still who he says you are the minute you believe in his son, which is this. The minute you believe, you're holy, you're sanctified, you're set apart, you're fit for holy worship and, and use unto the Father, right? You're blameless, all your sin is gone, you're light. All that happens the minute you believe. 
What doesn't happen immediately is my life doesn't completely conform to the image of Jesus. So sanctification is the process of becoming more. I use the word transformation because it's just such church language to say, I'm being sanctified. I'll just, I'm being transformed. And then you guys think of like Optimus Prime and you're like, I can make sense of that. I'm becoming a car. That makes more sense. I'm being transformed into the image of Jesus. But while my life is progressively becoming more like him, inwardly, how God sees me stays the same. This is why I've been distinguishing between how you live and who you are, right? How you live doesn't determine who you are. Again, how you, who you are in Christ is going to determine how you live. That's why God changes you completely from the inside out. So that as you're growing, as you're transforming, as you're being sanctified to look and live more like Jesus, your identity, your status, your self-worth, your standing with the Father all stays same because it's not based on getting to a certain point in lifestyle it's actually that wow i want to live more holy because of the fact that that's the truest version of who i am god is worthy and i am fit for that like i'm he sanctified me for that first thessalonians 5 23 it says may the god of peace himself sanctify you completely so it's like am i holy am i blameless or am i is there still a chance i like might not make it i was like if you're in christ you're good you are sanctified already you have been you have been set apart you have been made holy and blameless and without you know condemnation and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. So notice, you reaching the end of your sanctification doesn't depend on your efforts. Will it involve you doing and you having responsibility and you following the Father and the leading of the Spirit? Sure. Is it ultimately up to you or me to reach the end of our sanctification and make it? No. Why do you think verse 24 comes right in? He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. And that's not he will do it without your participation, but it's actually he will ensure it happens, right? And you'll have a degree of participation as well. But it's not based on you doing. It's based on him being faithful. We're going to end with looking at what it means that we are now holy, okay? That's sanctified. That's who you are. You are set apart and fit for holy use. You are fit for worship. You have been washed and cleansed and undergone the sanctification process. That's happened. It's done. You don't have to repeat it. You don't got to you know, figure out, how do I get back to that? I feel like I fell from that. You just got to go and follow Jesus now and live holy. So again, we've been consecrated and distinguished and set apart. Now we're going to look at what it means to be holy. But before we do, a quick commercial break. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible 
to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to abovereproachministry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338 uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day, pretty much. Uh, We're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Okie dokie. Born again believers are holy because they've been sanctified. The word in the Greek for holy, let's start with Hebrew. First of all, understand this. There was no one holy but the Lord. His name is holy. His character, his very nature, is set apart. The Hebrew word for holy, kadosh, means set apart, sacred. In a moral sense, it can be without sin or impurity. Uh, Without infirmity is another way of translating it. So in Isaiah 6.3, when Isaiah sees the... Um, the seraphim, six wings, two covering his face, two covering his feet, two as he flew, give you nightmares. He sees them worshiping, and one calls to another and says, I love this, they are declaring this about God, but they're talking, declaring it to each other. Not like he doesn't know, he's like, bro, I've been here as long as you have. What are you talking about, Robert? (laughs) I know he's holy. This is like just a, 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 a chain of worship. Holy, 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 thrice holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. For God to be holy, it means he is completely, categorically different. In ev- Just categorically different from what we know, what we've experienced, what we've seen. That doesn't mean that there aren't ways we can look at our world to make sense of things about God. That doesn't mean we can't compare people and situations to certain ways God might, you know, 
uh, certain ways of God that we can make sense of and go, it's like a father and a son. Oh, that's how he's like a father. It's like, uh, you know, he's gracious. It's like when you give a gift. Oh, that's what it means for him to be gracious. You make sense of ideas about God, but his fullness, his holiness, his otherliness, it means he's in a different category. Every Everything that exists is in this category called creation. And then you have God. Creation has a beginning. Creation depends on God. Creation has an end. God has no beginning, has no end, has eternally existed. He's, he inhabits eternity. He sustains the universe and he sustains himself. He doesn't rely on anything. In his character, in his uprightness, in, his, in the way that there's no imperfection within him. There's no sin, there's no darkness, there's no uh, immorality. He's perfect. We don't, we don't have a category for that. We try, but within our world, there is no real example from life, from people, from situations. There's no real example of absolute perfection without blemish without the without the the even ability to improve cuz he's already we don't have a category for that he's otherly he's distinct he's different his ways are higher than ours we don't have a, a category for that so when we say that um he is holy revelation 4:8 will end or at least you know the biblical narrative ends with the same idea four living creatures each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around, just to add that. Isaiah probably kept that out so you don't have nightmares. John, the visionary, goes, let me tell you, man, I saw these creatures. Isaiah didn't say they had eyes all around them, but I saw, you know, Ezekiel, I think, also adds that. Day and night, they never cease to say, ooh, there's day and night, or is that just a way to explain time? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. So God is holy. He's sacred. He's completely different from what you and I know, from what our imaginations can even comprehend and fathom. I can't imagine anything near the actual holiness and perfection and you know eternal nature of God. You can't. You can try. You can get close, and God, you know, allows you to know Him in a way that you can... This is called the incomprehensibility of God. He's not fully understandable. His ways, at least in our current state, we can't fully know the, the, the magnitude of His ways, the gravity of His character. He's awesome, but He's knowable. Just because you can't know him perfectly doesn't mean you can't know him at all. So God works with the categories we have and, and meets us where we are and shows us who he is in ways that we can understand and make sense of. So you go into the New Testament, and I, and I start with God being holy because you and I are only holy because he first is holy and sanctified, and he makes us holy. So our holiness is just the product of who he is. Period. The Greek word for holy, hagios, means uniquely different. 
set apart by or for God or distinct from other things. In other words, the word sacred, I think, in our English language is the best word that captures the heartbeat of holy. It's as if the angels are screaming, sacred, sacred, sacred. And that word doesn't even capture every dimension of the word holy. I get that. But in our understanding, that word sacred, uh, for me at least, helps me to make sense of what it means that he's holy. And now we get to the fun part. You and I are holy. It's who we are, not who we're trying to become. We are holy. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. And I want to show you why, okay? God's, we talked about this, that the presence of God is what sanctifies, sets something apart, um, whether it's the tabernacle or the temple or Mount Sinai or uh, where Joshua meets the, the Lord of hosts or... Um, you know, whether it's Jacob meeting God at Bethel, the presence of God is what sets a place apart, sanctifies a place, makes it holy. It's like sanctification is the process by which something becomes holy. Okay, so how does God uh, make us holy? He sanctifies us, but that involves his presence. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So who seals and fills you? The Spirit of God. We've already seen the Spirit plays a role in setting something apart because of his very presence. Just the fact that he is there, like in a, in a, in a, in a, in a space invasion kind of way. Because God technically is his glory fills the earth. He's on, you know, on the present. He's everywhere all at once. This is who our God is. He fills every crevice of the universe with his presence. But there's a there's a difference between God being present or uh, being in and God like intentionally invading a space. As if there's a there's a I don't want to get all new agey and you know sci-fi on you, but as if there's a rift being open between the material world and the heavenly realms. It's as, as if heaven is invading the earth because the presence of God is invading that space in the world. That that same idea of God invading or heaven and earth uniting and and there being a, a sort of I don't know what you'd call it. Not a portal, because that makes people get weird. I'm not going to use the word portal. But it's the fact that there's almost like a door open. God allows us to peek in or experience a degree of what his presence is in heaven fully is like here on the earth. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? Okay. And then I'll go on to say God's temple is holy. You collectively, remember, letters to early churches were read collectively. So there's no individualistic Christianity where it's like, I'm the temple. No, Susan, I'm the temple. No, Charlie, I'm the temple. We are the temple because each one of us fill, is filled with the Spirit and we house the Spirit of God. So just like the presence of God makes a space, sanctifies, set apart as holy, fill in the blanks. That's what God says about you. We, there's such a gap such a gap. In Western Christianity especially, there's a 
there's a lack of value and reverence for the sacred. Does that make sense? Um, and so when we, when we read texts like, yeah, the temple was the holy meeting place of God with his people and they'd come to worship and offer sacrifices, that just, we're like, oh, like going to the movies and watching Mario? No, 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 no. Oh, like my room. My room is like, no, it's nothing like your room. Your room sucks compared to the temple. The temple was, again, that in that inter... can't think of the word. That uh, crossover between heaven and earth and the people of God, would they would, they would sanctify that place. There'd be reverence. There'd be a, a sense of trembling. There'd be an awe. There'd be a gratitude. There'd be a weight. There'd be a... Uh, some kind of inward, if you're approaching it properly, there'd be some kind of inward appropriate reverence. We we go to church waiting for people to meet all of our expectations and, and entertain us until we are hungry enough to leave and and then I'll leave the service. We, we approach church, the presence of God, so different. And so, therefore, when we read God fills us with his presence, we don't have all the Old Testament backstory to what it meant for God to invade a space by his very presence. When he tells Moses, take off your shoes, when Joshua falls on his face, when even just an angel that created messenger would show up and people would bow down and they'd go, stop it. The angels would say, stop it. No, I'm not worthy of worship. He is. There's this sense of reverence and awe and he's sacred. And now God's like, I filled you with my spirit. And we're like, sweet. So no, no, you bozos. Like the temple, that sacred space is now you. It's now you. This doesn't inflate your ego. This doesn't make you like, I'm the, I'm the freaking man. This makes you tremble, humble. Stand in awe, fall on your face, worship in gratitude, walk with more introspection, watch, walk with more care. Like this, this changes things. You and I are not like this. Our bodies are of this world for sure. But inwardly, who you are in Christ, the fact that you now house the spirit of God, not just in a physical bodily way, but where your spirit is actually like a, a sense of, you know, filled with the spirit of God who resurrected your dead spirit, it changes things. This is who you are. You're the temple. And then Paul goes, do you not know you're God's temple? And you guys are just destroying the temple? This comes right after. This is going to come three chapters before, three chapters before um, he talks about the sin and the Corinthian church, the, the, the man sleeping with his father's wife. and But this comes after, like, y'all are dividing. And they're like, yeah, so what? I'm with Paul. I'm with Peter. Yeah, Peter stinks. Well, Paul, he's fire. What about Apollos? Now, forget Apollos. You know, they're taking sides. And the way Paul answers this dumb division is by going, do you guys not know his spirit? His sacred, very near presence, the spirit of him 
dwells in you. Not just in your midst when you gather, in you. Individually, and then collectively, you're the temple of God. This brings, um, you know those, when you get mail, when you get something shipped to your house and it says, fragile, handle with care, that this makes us approach our life like that. You and I are temples of, collectively, we're the temple of the living God. This should change the way you see yourself. It should. What, what kind of care, what kind of concern, what kind of reverence, what kind of, not reverence for you, reverence for him living in you, you know, what, what kind of appreciation and gratitude and, and, and holiness should result from being the sacred space of God. That's what you are. That's what you are. God has chosen to inhabit image bearers who were fallen. He changes them, sanctifies them, so that he can inhabit them. Because God ain't going to share space with nothing. He gets rid of sin, gets rid of human evil that stains your soul, cleanses you, makes you new, makes the house all nice and bright, and then fills you with his very presence. So that you, you're not just fit for worship. You understand that? You're not just fit to be of service and now I can be used by God. You, you're fit to be the actual sacred presence of God in the earth. Go think about that. It makes you not really want to be Instagram famous so much anymore, huh? It makes you not really care how far you get with your talents and how much people know you and how much of a following you get and how much your name really make how good you look and how strong you look and how much you go to the gym who freaking cares it makes you care so much less about these temporary worldly frankly useless things to where you go oh on the sacred space of God in the earth with the rest of the church? Why would I waste my life on things that don't match up with being the temple? Ephesians 2.21, it says, um, we are the church built on the apostles and prophets. Jesus is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, why are we called a structure? Because he's comparing you to the temple being joined together in Christ by the Spirit, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So this is the sanctification, being more like Jesus, and the justification, already being who God has made me to be. Right, You're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the progressive transformation of the life where you begin to live like who you truly are in Christ. Um, let me take you to... Because you're like, ah, you haven't shown me that we're holy. Okay, sorry. My fault. My fault. So the Greek word, again, think of how God is holy. Fundamentally different, categorically above and beyond everything we know. Sacred. 
but also there's this element of moral perfection. No sin, no evil, no, no, no wickedness, um, right? There's no darkness in him. Without blame, uh, upright, all those different words. And then he goes, you are holy. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, that's Jesus, you yourselves, like living stones, which is perfect to what, we're just, what we were just reading in Ephesians 2, same idea. There's this idea of sacred holiness. You're the temple of God. You yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, pause. All the ideas we've gathered along the way in this message are colliding in this one verse. The priests were sanctified from the rest of the nation of Israel, right? To offer spiritual sacrifice, to offer spiritual worship that they were fitted to bring God, that God authorized you can bring. I'm declaring you, priesthood, you're fit to serve in my temple on behalf of the nation. I've sanctified you, okay? Same idea. Or the, or the temple of God being filled with his spirit, the presence of God sanctifying a location, right? We are the spiritual house now, not just in a family name sense, but in an actual like building sense. We collectively are the living organism called the church. The temple of God is the analogy he uses. And we're being built up. These ideas collide in what it means that we are a holy priesthood now. So we've been sanctified, made holy, to be fit for service so that we're now the new priesthood following the ultimate high priest Jesus. We are holy. Now we can bring spiritual sacrifices. God accepts, God values and loves, honors his name because we've been declared and you know made a holy priesthood, cleansed of sin and set apart for that specific purpose. If you go down to verse 9, it says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, this word is key, so that, or for this reason, so that you can proclaim from the housetops, man, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So guess what? Before you could be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the family of God first, we need to be pulled out of darkness, a.k.a. cleansed, washed, sanctified. Now we are a holy, set-apart, distinct from the rest of the world nation. But it's not a physical nation. It's not national in terms of this is the territory we have and this is our race and ethnicity. It's every tribe, every tongue, every language, every country, every, everyone is represented in the family of God. The nation is not ethnic, it's spiritual. Okay? So being a holy nation means we now have and bear the name of our Father. And we are His people. We are part of His kingdom. The nation we're a part of, that we are, is built on Jesus. We're, we're, we're a part of the kingdom of God. That holy spiritual kingdom 
we're now part of that. We're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. So Peter's not stretching it by saying to be sanctified, to be holy, is to be the priesthood and the nation that Israel failed to be. He's bringing it all together. This is who you are. A royal priesthood. Royalty. That's what everyone's after in some sense. How many of you would take royalty? If I said, here it is. The influence, the power, the authority, the riches, the possessions. Royalty. The name. The reputation. A lot of people would be like, give me that now. Give me that right now. I will sell everything I have. Colossians 1. It says, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Therein lies part of the reason I've named this ministry above reproach ministry and people don't like that and yet this is how God sees us. This isn't how he sees our lives all the time. We don't always live above reproach. But this is the, now God sees you and the Son presents you as holy and blameless and above reproach. So, this is true of you now. But there is a continuing, there is a sanctifying, there is a becoming more holy. In fact, let me take you to Colossians chapter 3. It says, put on then. Uh, no. Did I do it again? I'll do it again. I'll do it again. Nope, that was right. That was right. That was right. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So, who are you? Who am I in Christ? You are holy. You are set apart. You are distinct from the rest of the world and the unbelievers and the wicked. Um, You're morally perfect and blameless in the sight of God because Jesus covers you in his righteousness and his perfection. And you're beloved. You're holy and beloved, right? Compassionate hearts. That's what's being put on here. You see it? So it goes like this. If, If we were to state it a little easier. Hey, put on compassionate hearts, God's chosen, holy and beloved. Put on kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Why? That's appropriate, man. That's the truest version of who you are. When you act out of character, and I'm calling it out of character because that's what sin is. It's not according to your true nature. It's not according to your true character. It's not according to how God sees you and who he says you are. Sin is out of character. Bitterness, resentful, you know, rage and impatience and lust and pride and selfishness and, and uh, love of money. That's not you. It's not. When you learn how to stop identifying with sin, and that's the next, next Monday we'll talk through. We're not sinners <laughs> anymore. But we, there's this weird thing in church where it's like, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. If you're saying you were a sinner and that that sinner got saved by grace and now you are saved by grace, sure. 
But if you're still identifying with your sin, there's an issue. Ephesians 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Meaning this, God chose you. Those who have faith in the Son, right? God chose you to be holy. Now, this is where people go, ah, see, he chose you to live holy. Yeah, that living holy has a step in between it, though, first. Before you live holy, he's chosen you to be at the core of who you are, your identity, your status, uh, your very nature now is holy and blameless before him. That's the step in between living holy. That comes before it. So you and I, as holy, blameless children of God, that God does not see according to our own sin and failures anymore. There's no condemnation. He doesn't hold sin against us. He separated that from us as far as the East is from the West. Since we're not covered by sin anymore, it's appropriate, it's reasonable, it's what you're made for is to live holy. So since you are different, the, re- the, 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 the reasonable response is go and live different. Go and live different. We missed this earlier. I didn't spend a lot of time on it, but when we were talking about, you know, um, marriage, marriage, um, it says that we're presented to be holy and blameless without blemish. That's who you are. This is not, oh, if I try hard enough, I might be. If you believe in the Son, you are set apart. You are distinct. You are different. You are, in the sight of God, morally perfect because Jesus has been perfect for you. And you've trusted in His righteousness to be credited to your account. Now, here's where we get into the last two verses. This whole, I am holy, but what about living holy? First, born-again believers are sanctified, okay? That process of being sanctified results in us being holy. So now we're holy. The last thing is that born-again believers are called to live holy. So in verse 21 of 2 Timothy, it says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, you ask ask me, what is dishonorable? I'd say sin, sin evil, that which dishonors the character and the word of God, it contradicts who he is, what he said, what he wants for you, okay? If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful, that's another description, to the master, ready for every good work. Let's think through this. Can I cleanse myself from all my sin. I used to read this as, this is a believer choosing to cleanse themselves, not from sin, but from, you know, the things of the world. I used to read this as like, hey, um, if a believer chooses to stay away from sin, 
he'll be a useful vessel to God. He'll be useful. And I think there's a, there's a connection between like our usability or how much God chooses to use us and how much we in, engage in sinfulness. I think there is a connection. Um, but I don't believe this verse is touching on that. I think what's being contrasted are in the same house, okay, and I don't believe that just because it talks about the house, automatically we're talking about the kingdom, um, automatically we're talking about, you know, the, the family of God. I think the house is just representative of the world, okay? That, that's just what I've come to believe about this passage after reading it. There's dishonorable vessels and there's honorable vessels. This same comparison is drawn in Romans chapter uh, Romans 9. Romans chapter 9 makes the same uh, parallel. Okay, this dishonorable vessels versus honorable vessel. Moses was honorable, Pharaoh was dishonorable. So I don't believe we can conclude, oh, there's evil people in the house, in the family, in the kingdom of God. No, what we're talking about here is that in the world, there are dishonorable vessels, unbelievers, wicked sinners who are separated from God and don't want to believe. And then there are those who are believers, right? But this is not me cleansing myself from sin. I know it says if anyone cleanses himself, there's these calls in the Old Testament on the people of Israel to essentially do the same. And the point is, look to God for righteousness to cleanse you. That's your job. You don't effectively accomplish the cleansing, right? You look to him to cleanse you, but you're a part of that process. Going, God, cleanse me. Make me righteous. God goes, oh, that's my boy. Yeah, I'll cleanse you. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, this is God cleansing the person to be now an honorable, holy, useful, ready for every good work vessel. Um, someone might read this differently, and I used to read it differently too. I'm open to changing my opinion, but I don't think it changes the main point, which is that um, there are vessels that are holy and set apart, being the children of God. And by nature, being holy and set apart or sanctified means you are useful to God now. You are now ready for all the good works he's planned for you to walk in. All the good works he's prepared for you. Ephesians chapter 2. You're created in Christ Jesus for good works before the foundation of the world. Those good works, you're now compatible with them. You're now fitted to do them. You're now ready to go and do those good works. Because you're useful to the master. And you're holy. So this is, if you want to go the route that I used to read this text as, which is, you know, this is an, uh, two different believers in the house of God. One is like, you know, making themselves available to be used by God and the other one's not. That's fine. That's fine. But the, I think the point still stands. Being set apart, being holy means being useful and ready for the good works God has for us. This is the difference, again, between living holy and being holy. I am holy. But when those good works come my way or the opportunity comes, will I answer the call and actually live according to who I really am? The last verse is this, 1 Peter 14, uh, 1, 14 and 16. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So you have option number one. You can choose to be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, right? 
or you can be holy in all your conduct. But notice, as obedient children, in other words, not to become children, but since you're already children of God, don't be conformed to your old way of life. That was ignorant. That wasn't rooted in truth. But, in other words, here's the motivation. He who called you is holy. Okay, number one. You should also be holy. This doesn't say, to be holy in the sight of God, live holy. This is, since you're a child, and since he's holy, and since you're holy in his sight, be holy in the way you live. You know why? Because we have this interesting passage in Leviticus 11, Verse 44, you shall be holy for I am holy. So it's as if Peter's encouraging holy living, not by saying you might lose your salvation because you can't, not by saying, hey, you, you might not you know, reach the standard of God and be good enough in his sight and be holy. It's not his motivation. His motivation is this, okay? Since you're a child of God, since he is holy, since he called you to holiness, since he enabled you to live holy, since he's empowered you by his spirit to live holy. Go and live holy. There's the call on the life of the holy children of God to go and do what they're fitted for, what is reasonable to their new life, what is compatible with their new nature. You are holy, so live like it. What if I don't? Ever? If you never, ever, in any way, transform and change and ever become more like Jesus for the 90 years you're saved, there's a problem. you probably be a little more introspective. But if... I'll tell you this. The degree to which Jesus conforms us to his image in this life, each of us will have a different experience and a different degree to which that plays out in our life, Okay? So I'm not going to judge you by the degree of sanctification I've experienced. Say, well, uh, five years ago I was here, and so Ronald, if you're not here, I don't think you're a believer. You know, that's not how we play this game. Um, but there will be some degree of conformity and transformation into the image of Christ, period. If you see nothing that might testify to the fact that either you're an, a new immature believer and you need to grow up, or you don't know him. And I ain't the one to decide which it is. But guess what? You're called to holiness. That's why he makes you holy. Not to live in sin. Not an excuse to, to, to continue in the darkness he pulled you out of. That doesn't make any sense. Here, let me set you apart from the rest of the darkness so you can keep living in the darkness. That doesn't make any sense. He makes you the light, fills you with the spirit, sanctifies you, makes you holy to live different. To live like who you really are in him. So again, identity comes before a change in life. He changes your identity. He changes your nature. He changes your essence. Get it together, Ronald. <laughs> if, you, if your name's Ronald in here, I'll send you a, an apologetic letter. But listen, at the end of this, you are holy. You are set apart. Like you are sanctified. You have been sanctified. You have been washed. Next week, we'll look at what it means that we are forgiven. Um, and we're not sinners anymore. We're actually righteous. We'll look at that. But for now, 
I want you to, I want to end on just you thinking about what does it mean that I'm holy? Do I understand what it means to be sanctified? Do I understand what it means to be holy? Do I actively pursue a life that matches with my inward identity? If you didn't already know, you can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. The link is in the description below to check out all the free stuff we have. We have tons of free resources, free devotional studies, free Bible study skills courses. We have an 11-day Bible study program, a 27-day program, a 40-day Bible study program, in-depth, self-paced, completely free, online. We have Bible study worksheets, sermon notes. Just go to free stuff on our website. We have, we have our online church through the Discord app. Okay, we have an online server um, on Discord. That's the name of the app. I didn't name it. And then um, that's where we meet as a church around the world. Obviously, our YouTube, we have a podcast. We have a second podcast for uh, creators, for church leaders, for those who want to be play their role in the local church. Bible study courses, devotional studies, Bible study workshops. All my sermon notes are available for you to explore and download for free Bible study worksheets and I have a copy or I have a book um, if you didn't already know this I wrote a book it's called fruitful it's to help people understand the essential keys to living the most abundant satisfying Christian life um, you can get your copy linked in the description below or on our website right here you can sample it if you want if you're not comfortable just buying a book sample it um, and check out all both our podcasts all these sermons get uploaded to podcasts you can get some merch, and you can also d- donate and support this ministry financially because everything we do here is completely free. Um, the online church, the resources, the, the sermons, all of it is completely uh, made available because of generous supporters like you guys. And so if you find value in this and you want to support what God is doing, you can give at abovereproachministry.com slash donate, and you can give through debit or credit card right here. Just click donate. You can give, send a check to PO Box 338. Um, you can... Uh, give through PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo. You can give through Patreon on a monthly basis. You can buy some church merch. We have a bunch of stuff going on, all right? And if you end up joining the Bible study courses uh, or the program, the 11-day, 27-day, 40-day, whatever it is, my encouragement to you is join um, the the private group on our Discord server for those who are going through the program and just interact with people. Ask questions, share your work, share your progress and what God's teaching you. And I think I hit it all. All right. In about two minutes, we're going to jump on the Discord app, actually, and uh, talk through these things and, and pray with each other. If you want to come join, come and join. Apply to the Discord server and you'll get in. And um, it'll be a good time. All right. Thanks for watching. I think that's all. Go and watch the other two episodes if you haven't already watched. Um, those will make more sense of what's going on here, too. So thanks for watching, guys, and I'll see you later. Keep moving towards Jesus, because that's how I sign off every time, and I really mean it.